Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's pop bottles and read novels. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Well, we already read the novel, so now we have to just pop the bottle, which we did. Yes, we certainly did. We certainly did. I don't like to get started unless we already have the glass sitting here ready for me to for me to enjoy. Yeah, definitely. It, it adds an additional flair to our recording <laughs> sessions here. Especially if we get angry and then we're fueled by, fueled by, by wine. wine. <laughs> rants. Our rants are fueled by wine. <laughs> Which I think is great. And I'm assuming why you all listen to us. So we are really, really excited because we are going to be discussing a book that we both really loved. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really loved this book so very much. And I think we were a little intimidated at the beginning because of the length. It's it's a huge book. Like it's, I can knock someone out if I yeah. hit them with this book. It's like 400 something, maybe yeah. 500, right? Like we're, we're looking at a pretty thick book here, uh, but it's a young adult novel. Yeah. So it's our first young adult novel that we're covering on the podcast. And it's also the very first time that we're reading a book by a Native American author. Mm-hmm. And we're specifically focusing on... Uh, a Native American story. This is really what the book is about. It's very much giving you a sort of look inside of life within a tribe, life within a reservation, life uh, when your identity is both Native and non-Native. And I thought that that was a really interesting way for us to, um, you know, discuss this book and, and, and think about some of the themes that have to do with identity and culture. So I think this is going to be a really, really rich conversation. And I think we should also note that because this book is so plot driven, we're really going to focus more today on like the nuggets of knowledge, the wisdom that we get from the book and less about the plot because we would just be giving way too much away. Yes, we don't want to ruin it for you. It's a great read. So I urge you all to read it and, and not have us uh, ruin that for you. Yeah, super riveting. It's one of those that I I kept turning the pages because I thought it was so, so fascinating and so like fast paced and so fun and really, really profound. And we're, you know, we're excited to discuss it for many, many reasons, but I think especially because it was so eye opening for us. No, definitely eye opening. And with this book, we are sipping on Camines to Dreams, Gruner Veltliner. Um, which is also made by a Native American winemaker and, and her partner. So we are glad to be pairing the book with this wine and, and diving into all things, you know, Native American culture, all this different tales and wisdom and just dive in. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's worth you mentioning a little bit about like how hard it was to get oh my God. this wine, it right? Really like was. we we really well, not we, you spend so much time and put such incredible effort into these pairings. And this was a tougher one, I think, in terms of yeah. you finding a proper pairing, right? Yeah, this one was tougher. Um, I was looking at a wine article um, from Wine Enthusiast. It was an article from a couple of years ago that had, you know, top Native American winemakers. And it had a list, I think, of like four. So already the list is pretty limited. And then on top of that, I, I was Googling them. One is in Canada and doesn't ship down here. So that already, you know, crossed off my list. The other two closed. So I'm like, okay, great. Let's see. And then um, this one, finally, this one was actually made by the winemaker whose other winery closed. 
and this was her own venture. So I was very glad to be able to get it. And then there was, you know, you can't really find these wines in many places because they are um, smaller batches are made. So it's not like you're going to go to a total wine and grab it off the shelf. Right, right. So lots of looking at specialty wine shops online. I ordered it from a wine shop because on their website, the new vintages that haven't um, come out yet. So I ordered it online at a shop, waited a week, ready to record. And they're like, oh, everyone has COVID, so it can't be shipped for another week. <laughs> but luckily, the COVID, it's still here. <laughs> what a 2022 problem. Oh, my God. But then luckily, they released their new vintages. So I was able to get it directly on their website. And, and it came just in the nick of time for us to record. Yeah, no, it was it was quite an adventure. Um reminiscent of the adventure you'll find in the, <laughs> book. the book no question about that twists and turns lots of twists and turns lots of plot twists um you know it's very unpredictable but it, it i mean so far you'll i know you'll dive deep into it but so far i mean it, it tastes great i'm very happy to be sipping it yes for this conversation i i wanted to start off just by throwing out there the idea that sometimes as readers as people we steer clear of books and topics and conversations that make us uncomfortable for no other reason other than that we don't know that much about the topic, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that we aim to do with this podcast is to make things accessible and to admit when it's a learning curve for us, right? Like this book 100% was a learning curve for us because yeah. we've never read anything by a Native American author. We've never read fiction um, that really dives so deep into Native American life mm -hmm. in a contemporary setting, we should say, right? This is really a story that's talking about how history, American history, has put Native Americans in a particular position, mm -hmm. I guess is the light yeah. way of putting it, right? I have to agree. And, and so for this, for this book, you know, we were as prepared as we can be, but we're seeing this really more as, as, a conversation not only with each other, but with all of you and an opportunity for us to continue to learn because that's really what this what this whole podcast is about. You know, yeah. we're in, we are by no means experts on this topic. No, I think not the next book, but the following book, I'll say we probably are somewhat yeah. experts on that topic, but this is not one of them. This so we're, so we're eager to learn. We're eager to learn. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I want people to approach this book with the same open mind. You don't have to know much to appreciate this book and to learn a lot. And I think that that's what makes this book so special. And I also need to mention that in the same way that I had a disclaimer back in episode two, Beach Read, that yeah. romance novels are incredible and worthy of your time and not just fluff, that young adult novels are also brilliant. They're brilliantly written. They are profound. They are wise. And they have so much to offer. So don't shy away from a young adult novel. I mean, we can really prove that with this book. Yes, this book is really great. I mean, even Reese approves of it yeah. in her book club. Reese's YA book club pick, I think, <laughs> from last year. I mean, this book really, it flew off the shelves. This is Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Booley. This book has been so popular. I've seen it all over Bookstagram. I think it took a, a few trips to the bookstore for yes, me to finally get a copy. Right. It was right? taking a while for you. It was tough. Not as tough as it was for you to get the wine, but it was 
tough. <laughs> and so we felt, you know, like this was going to be a challenge from, from the very beginning, but such a, such a, such, such a worthy one. And I wanted to start off with the idea of identity, right? What I, what I initially mentioned and how this book talks about identity. The, the main character, Donise, um, she is this young teenager who is living in her community as a, as a mixed teenager, right? Her, yeah. Her father is Native American or was Native American, and her mother and her mother's side, they are white, right? So she is dealing with this um, with this mixed identity. And I wanted to dive into that and start with that conversation because I think it's, it's a theme that runs throughout the entire book because she does apply to become a... What's um, the term? A tribe member. Yeah, she she she's not enrolled. Enrolled, yes, That's enrolled what it was. as a, a tribal enrolled member in the tribe. Exactly. Which you get different benefits, and you could um, vote on certain topics, and just be more integrated into the community that way. Exactly, and so she does apply for that. So there is this idea of it being part of her culture, but not necessarily being part of the legal, um, you know, part of her Ra- life. Yes, or, yeah, I don't really legal, know how to whatever phrase it, that. Yeah. But it's something that causes her to feel a sense of displacement within her community, I would argue. And she says pretty early on in the book, and I think this is a really powerful quote. She says, it's hard when being Native means different things depending on who's asking and why. Um, And to some people, you'll never be Native enough. Yes, it's your identity, but it gets defined or controlled by other people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I definitely wanted to discuss because I think a lot of people can relate to that, not necessarily in a native context, but, uh, you know, I'm always going to bring it back to Miami. I'm always going to bring it back to what I know. And me and you, for example, we're both born and raised here, but, but we're not just American. We're not really one thing. Yeah. We feel so divided and, and, and I don't know how you feel, but I know that for me personally, you know, I, I don't think that to some people I'm I'm American or American at all because of what I look like or because my parents aren't from here. But if I go to Nicaragua, I'm also not really seen as Nicaraguan enough because yeah. I have an American apple pie accent and I was educated here and I'm more Americanized, so yeah. to speak, than because I didn't grow up in Nicaragua. So this idea of being two things and other people defining that for you is frustrating because there are people who will tell me that I am not Nicaraguan enough or I'm not American enough or whatever it may be. And and that's for me to decide. Yeah. It's always such a frustrating topic when you run across those people. Like when I tell them, you know, because you always identify, I think, with your heritage and, and your background and your parents, what, what you grew up with. So I'm there with my bisabuela and she's cooking Cuban food and watching her telenovelas. But then, you know, at school, you, you're taught English very young and like English is what I speak right off the bat just because right. that's kind of what I now grew up with. So if I were to ever go back to Cuba, which I've never been. So some may even say, oh, well, are you really even Cuban if you've never been to Cuba? If I were to go back and see those that's family so members, right? They're like, but you say you're Cuban American, but you've never even been there. And some people be like, well, I've been there. And they're like white ass people from Right. So how can you say you're Cuban if you've never been there? Exactly. But again, it's like you construct with the assistance, of course, of your family and your life and the way that you grew up, but you construct your own identity and what you take from each culture. I mean, for me to ever deny 
that I'm Nicaraguan would be so fundamentally ridiculous yes. because it's it's the reason why Spanish is my first language. It's the reason why I speak Spanish the way that mm-hmm. I do. It's the reason why my parents have certain beliefs or ideals. It's why I was raised a certain way. So no one can really tell you these things, but people always seem to find the audacity somewhere inside. They always want to box you for their own comfort instead of just having you construct who you are. Exactly. And I wanted to bring up the idea of hyphenation for that reason. Mm-hmm. You said Cuban American. The only people in America who aren't who aren't not hyphenated yeah. are white people. Yeah. Right? Everyone else has to be hyphened, right? You're Latin American. You're African American, right? You're yeah. whatever you are, but you're always hyphened. And I think that that's fascinating because hyphens inherently disrupt the narrative that is being set up for you, right? It disrupts where you're supposed to end up. It disrupts those boxes that you mentioned. And so within the Native American community, there's this added layer of confusion and pressure because they do it by, by blood. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that's a whole other level of, 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 of confusion, I would argue. And doing that by blood percentage adds this whole other layer of complication, I think, right? It's so specific. It's so, you can't argue it. No, at all. She had to do a bunch of DNA tests with her family members and have elders in the community vouch for her. It's it's a very legitimate, like, black or white process. It's like, this is the, these are the numbers, is what we go by. <laughs> yeah, it's intense. And when you add that layer of defining someone's identity, I think it becomes really, really, really difficult because then what does it count that you grew up there? What does it count that yeah. that's your culture? If they are to tell you that because your blood percentage is not what it should be, that you're not part of the tribe. I yeah. mean, it just, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, it's like if everything you know and grew up with, they're like, no, but you're not. You're not that. Right. And she says very, I would say halfway through the book or so, she says, my whole life I've been seeking validation of my identity from others. Now that it's within my reach, I realize I don't need it. Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, this this reckoning, this self-awareness where you realize, as, as, as we have realized, as, as, as we've discussed this many times, that it's not up to other people yeah. to decide. And this is what's really interesting, actually. This is a kind of side anecdote, but this reminds me so perfectly. There's this really incredible artist who lives in New York, and her name is Danielle de Jesus. She's an incredible painter, and she recently had her work shown at MoMA PS1 and in the nationality line, right, the bio line where they ask, you know, where are you from so we can place your nationality on the label. Mm -hmm. She wrote New Yorican. Oh my god! Whoa. And I thought that was so That's fucking clever. great, you know, because she's it. like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't grow up in Puerto Rico. I grew up here in New York, but my Puerto Rican roots have informed who I am. They've informed yes. what I am. They've informed my art. They inform what you're seeing, right? So I'm both things, and that kind of flexibility, that kind of adaptability, that kind of of knowing who you are inherently is the message, you know? I you love can, that. Isn't it the best? It's the best. I would be a Miami bin. Miami bun? <laughs> Miami, Miami bun. Miami bin. <laughs> or like my, my favorite phrase here, Miami, the Jubin. Oh, Jubin. If you're Jew and yes. Cuban, there you go, you're Jubin. You know, but it's just, you have to take ownership of, of, of your own identity. If not, what happens is you leave room 
for other people to fill in those gaps. Yeah. And it's not on them. It's not their responsibility. No, at all. And that's why sometimes when people ask where I'm from, I say Miami. I don't say, you know, obviously I'm not going to say Cuba. I'm not Cuban. If I'm abroad, right. not going to say America. <laughs> no, I just no. say Miami. Yeah. I, you know, I do too. I tell people that I'm from Miami. Every time. Yeah. 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 Except ironically when I'm here in Miami. Yeah. You can't say it. Because in here what people really want to know is, you know, where, yeah, what my heritage is, you know, why I speak Spanish, where my Spanish is from. Yes. That's really the question they're asking you when they ask you here in Miami where you're from. But anywhere else, I always tell them that I'm from Miami. Yeah. (laughs) Because Miami in and of itself is this hodgepodge. It's this melting pot of people. And so it's implied that I come from a diverse, wonderful, colorful place. It explains it all. Exactly. Exactly. It's perfect. It's perfect. I have a lot of issues with Miami, but I will we always reclaim that yes, part. I'll always love it. I will always love her. But it's 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 interesting how identity is handled in this book for that reason, because we're thinking about a young girl and she's so profound for her age. She Obviously really the author is the author. really giving her quite a bit of of wisdom for her age. Her year, wisdom beyond her years. Exactly. And I think that that is a reflection of the way that wisdom and knowledge is passed down in the Native American tradition, a lot of it being, of course, oral history mm-hmm. and uh, stories that are passed on from generation to generation. And that's also a huge theme in the book, the idea of elders, of generations, of the responsibility that we have to those who will come after us. And I found that really, really moving because we live in a society, we live in a hyper-capitalist society that really is only interested in when you can turn a profit and how yeah. soon you can turn a profit. And very we care very little. Yes, exactly. Very individualistic, not at all focused on community. And this idea of, 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 of individualism, this it, it contributes to the idea of, you know, pulling yourself up by your proverbial bootstraps, right? Because if you work hard, you'll get what you deserve. But what that really means is that if you don't get the things that you need, you deserve that too. Yeah, you didn't work hard enough. It's a double-edged sword. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) That rugged individualism is so counter to Native American culture, to to the fact that these communities are strong because they lean on each other and because they pass this knowledge down from generation to generation. And I, I found this moment in the book so so beautiful where she says people say to think seven generations ahead when making big decisions because our future ancestors those yet to arrive who will one day become the elders live with the choices we make today yeah that's so profound and so not what we do here (laughs) at all and so needed it's so needed it's like down here what by 2030 most of florida is going to start feeling the effects of climate change and sea level rise and then we still have people you know in government just being like whatever we'll continue our ways yeah, who, and cares? who cares who cares the yeah. environment what 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 they get wrong about that argument is that the earth will live on yeah she will eventually be just fine yeah we're wiping ourselves out Exactly. That's what we're really doing. In the long run, we're the ones who won't be able to survive here. Yeah. Other things will. Other things will. (laughs) And we won't. And the earth will then heal and be glad she got rid of us because we've been nothing but an absolute burden. Parasites on her. Yeah, just horrible. (laughs) And I love this idea of the elders being your inspiration for making positive choices. 
that the choices that you make today will affect those who come after you. It's such a simple lesson. It's such a simple and yet profound thing to consider when really making any decision. Definitely. And I like um, the level of accountability and responsibility that comes with that mindset, thinking ahead so far, which a lot of people don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I found it really fascinating that she, the author relates that to humility. Yeah. And humility being something that is very different to what I had kind of defined it as in my own head. She says that it's that humility is the knowledge that I am part of something larger than my existence. Mm-hmm. That's never how I had thought of humility. No. Right? It's such a different definition. It's such a different way of thinking about your place in the world and remembering that you are but a part. And that doesn't mean that you're not a great part. You're yeah, not a worthy yeah. part. But you're a part of so many other things, of so many other people and communities and ideas and events and things that will happen again thinking seven generations ahead it's just such a real it's just such a beautiful sentiment i think and one that we really need to hear now and i'm hoping that this being a young adult novel that you know young people read this and that they take this and they say you know this is applicable to some of the struggles that we're seeing right now whether it be climate change or or, or women's rights or, you know, voting rights, whatever it may be, that that simple change of mindset can inspire people to continue to fight for the things that are right. Because even if you lose those rights, hopefully the generation after you will have them back. Yeah. Raise hell yeah, until they're yeah. back. I mean, I'm, I'm going to raise hell yeah. now. <laughs> Because I don't think that for others behind us. Exactly. I don't think anybody that comes after me should have less rights than I do. That's just bullshit. That's just absolute fucking nonsense. And unfortunately, we're living in a country that's 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 moving in that direction. But we have to raise hell. And I think this this book is it's not overtly political. It's not coming at you from a from a super hyper progressive place. But it's coming to you from a place of moral wisdom that I think can be applied to anybody. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what I find so refreshing about it. It is. No, I love all the the nuggets throughout because as you as you get to know Donis and her journey and the story, which we won't ruin, she touches back on all these lessons she's learned from the elders, from her auntie, from you know other tribal members, and and she's just so smart and so intelligent beyond her years and. And just the way that she applies them to the challenges she's facing within this novel right. is just also really beautiful. And, and it's refreshing to see a young person being so mindful yeah. and deliberate and just trying to make a difference in their community in that way. A hundred percent. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that she does have this background and mm-hmm. she, that she's mixed and she she's almost proving to herself and to her community how much this community really means to her how much yeah. she belongs to it. Sometimes you have to have a little bit of that outsider to feel like you can actually come in and make a real change because it is your community, yeah. right? Ironically, it's it's such a bizarre kind of line to, to walk. But one of the things that really resonated with me now that you mentioned the fact that she is so wise and that she had all of these really incredible moments that she shares with us, you know, in the book as readers is she says it's okay to listen to what people say and only hold on to the parts that resonate with you. It's okay to leave the rest behind. Trust yourself to know the difference. And we've talked about that a lot yeah. on this podcast, the, the the idea of values and knowing what your own values are 
And if you know what your values are, then you know what aligns with those values and what doesn't. And what doesn't, you you leave behind. Yeah, trash it. You trash it. Out of your life. It has no place in your life if it doesn't align with your values. And that has to do with really everything, whether it's in your professional life, your personal life, your friends, whatever it may be. If it doesn't align with your values, it must be removed. And I really like that she mentions that, you know, and, and she talks about how love is something that honors the spirit, mm-hmm. right? That it's not just the other person's, but your own spirit too. So she's also throwing out here a lot of ideas, not only of identity and wisdom when it comes to the elders and her future community, but also about self-love. Yes, which is so important. So, so, so important because I know that I would have had it a lot easier in my life if I would have read bell hooks at a younger age, if I would have learned about self-care at a younger age and not in my late 20s. Yeah, agreed. You know, I would be, I would be a lot more annoying. (laughs) <laughs> but that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I would raise a lot more hell, you know, because <laughs> you have to. You have to take up space. You have to yeah. put yourself in a position where that wisdom becomes a part of your life, right? And and she says, you know, wisdom is not bestowed. In its raw state, it is the heartbreak of knowing things you wish you didn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, all of these are just so good. They're so knowing good. Knowing things I'm... you wish you didn't. And that is wisdom, is it not? I mean, it's knowing that things are not always going to go your way. It's knowing when and where things can go wrong. Yeah. It's the idea that sometimes you can't change those things, that you're powerless to those things. But when you are, when you do have power, when you have the ability to affect change, those are your moments to take it really seriously. Those are your moments to affect change. Those are your moments to get involved. That's your rallying cry. And she does a really good job, the author, I think, of using Donis as the the personification of a rallying cry. Yeah. Right? She takes her on this journey. Crazy journey of inciting change within her, her community. Um, not giving anything away, but something big is happening within the community that's affecting other tribal communities throughout the region. And Donis is kind of this, this just... Fire starter, yeah, agency. I'm trying to like a fire starter, this fire keeper of change. Yeah, and and yeah, it's just quite incredible how she, you know, weaves all these lessons into her her journey of it, it's major. I mean, you you have to read it. It's like yeah, major plot. It's also very important that the main character, the Donise, is a woman. Yeah, a young woman because. Womanhood and femininity are also a very important subject within this book. And the idea of self-love is in there because of that, mm-hmm. right? Because she's really trying to make it clear that only through self-love and valuing yourself can you make the right decisions, not only for yourself, but for your community. When you take care of yourself, you can take care of your community, right? Yeah. We've talked about this. You cannot pour from an empty cup. And that definitely comes through in this book. But there's there's a lot of talk about uh romantic love yes in this book as well and one thing that she said that really resonated with me and that i think a lot of people will read and go yeah i've i've felt that way is she says your needs scare me i'm afraid i'll focus on your needs over mine and i don't think there's a single person on this earth who hasn't felt that in some capacity or in some way in their life and she describes love as peace She says, to know love is to know peace. 
love is a promise, right? She uses love and the metaphor really of both romantic love and self-love to be, to always guide you in the direction of peace, to guide you in the direction of safety. Are you in a safe space? Yeah. Right? Love is a safe space. Whether it's romantic, whether it's platonic, it doesn't really matter what it is. It has to be a safe space. So the idea of womanhood in here, I think is really fascinating because we're very oftentimes told as women, I mean, going back to episode one, talking about Glennon Doyle's Untamed, that women are really only as worthy as how selfless they can become, right? And how (laughs) backwards that idea is. And I love that this is a book that's aimed at young people, especially young women, and they're going to read this and go, oh, so I'm allowed to take a second and put myself first Mm -hmm. and that's a seismic shift it's huge especially in a young a young adult book yeah so glad that 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 lesson's in there exactly and i think so many young women especially women who are who are raised in latin american cultures you know a lot of what we're taught and and i wasn't taught this My, my my parents were never these people but a lot of young young women in these communities are taught that the the goal is to find a husband, to get married, and to have children. That that is your definition of success. And it's a terrifying thought because we don't teach men the same thing, right? We don't teach young men that their definition of success is to find a wife and to have children. And so the way that she's framing, you know, being afraid of this other person's needs and being vulnerable enough to say, I'm afraid that I'll put your needs over my own, is one of the most human moments for me mm-hmm. in the book. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too that you mention um, like that machismo culture in Latin America, how it's kind of like get married, have kids, please the man, make mm-hmm. sure that his needs are all met. I found that interesting with some of the relationships in the the tribe and how her best friend and her best friend, I want to say Lily? Yes. Lily, Lily um, and her boyfriend, their relationship kind of was and how the auntie was dealing with some of her friends and their husbands and boyfriends and kind of like, you know, the volatile relationships there. And that and that volatility that we see in those relationships that you're mentioning, there's there is this wisdom that kind of permeates underneath as well, because Lily decides that she doesn't want to be involved in that kind of toxicity. And Auntie Teddy, who is one of the most inspirational figures in the book, I would say she's Donise's aunt and and provides so much wisdom and understanding. And she was such a fascinating character awesome. to me. She is so strong, right? Mm-hmm. And she and she talks about how it's so important to be in a relationship that is safe, where they will treat you with the same love and respect that you should really use with yourself that you should care for yourself with right and and she says you know i was in a relationship with somebody who was upset with me when the sun was shining on me for a second right and eventually i couldn't handle that anymore and i think a lot of women experience that in their lives where they're they end up in relationships where the men feel like it, everything is their decision mm-hmm. and that we're kind of just along for the ride yeah, as like if they're accessory yeah as if we don't have the right to decide what the future has in store for us both or how we want to go about our day-to-day or how you should or shouldn't speak to somebody mm-hmm. right so auntie teddy provides a lot of that kind of context in the book and i i can see any young woman reading this 
And I think breathing a sigh of relief, because yeah. I think it's inherent within all of us to know better than the things that we're taught. I do believe that because you can feel the pull in your belly when someone is teaching you something that you know inherently is wrong. And so I can I feel that this book provides this this respite for so many young women who might be learning the opposite, yeah. but who can read this and go, no, I, I, I knew that this was right. Mm-hmm. I know that this isn't how I'm supposed to live my life or how I'm supposed to be looked at, right? That to me is just so, so, so important. It's just, it's one of those things that I, I always forget, you know, between my books, like how fundamentally important a book can be for somebody, you know, for us, like now that I'm reflecting on it, I just think to myself, man, what would I have felt if I had read this when I were young? Oh my God. It it would have been life changing. Yeah. I mean, I know I had a bit of toxic relationships in my teens and had I read this and I would have known to have done better and to expect better and accept better. To have chosen yourself first, right? Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And and I also wanted to talk about this idea of expendability, right? We can't really have a conversation about life as a Native American here in the United States without talking about the way that Native women are treated. Yeah. And the, st- and the horrifying statistics, rape, women going missing, uh, domestic violence, uh, the amount the amount of statistics that I read in preparation for this podcast episode, I had already, I had an idea. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. An inkling, things you hear here and there, but. But this was, I mean, I don't have the words, yeah. you know, to describe what reading those statistics did to me, right? Because when you're thinking about these kind of statistics, you you can't, you cannot argue, you just cannot argue that this is happening to them for any other reason than them being Native American women. Yeah. You can't. There is just no other reason. And I really appreciate that through Donise, the the author talks about expendability. Yeah. And she she does mention that for her, it's absolutely exhausting, right? That it's, she says, I'm so tired. The weight of my expendability is crushing. And I want to take a moment, obviously, to acknowledge the fact that this is something that Native American, this, the statistics within this within this country are a lot, are significantly worse when it comes to murder and rape and domestic violence yeah. when it comes to Native American women. But I want to address this as, as an issue. Um, I think all women feel that to an extent. You know, we, we all know how crushing that expendability can feel. We all know what it's like to be treated like we are lesser. And that always brings me back to the conversation of public space. Public space is not designed for women. Rebecca Solnit, who wrote the incredible essay, Men Explain Things to Me, (laughs) she asked a question. And I think we should do something on social media with this, actually. Oh, my God. She asked the most fascinating question. She said, women, what would you do if men were gone from the planet for 24 hours. <laughs> we should ask it. I I was like, oh my God. I think I would go for a walk at night. Yeah. Like I think totally. that's what I would do. I would just go out at night and like walk around and be like, wow. I don't have to I don't have to turn back every five seconds. Look around, put your keys in your hands so you could right. stab someone if they come at you. <laughs> right. Have your pepper spray or whatever. Make sure you're wearing running shoes. So if you need to run, you can run. Yeah. What a fascinating idea. Yeah. But that that question comes from 
the fact that women feel expendable within our society. And it's the most enraging thing because inherently we know that that isn't true. Yeah. Right. We know how worthy we are. And the reason that women, at least the reason that I have felt frustrated and angry in the past when I've been treated as though I'm expendable, it's because I fucking damn well know that I'm not. Exactly. And that's where the rage comes. It's that space in between. And that's what makes this book, I think, also so incredibly profound because it speaks to women on a level that it's a conversation we don't always want to have with ourselves, but the book kind of forces us to have it and in a really healthy and positive way, I would argue. Yeah, no, and I love that and the way that they do it. And unfortunately, in this book, a lot of the women end up being expendable through different circumstances. Right. It it really shines a light on that. And and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like it's the most frustrating thing when you know damn well that the person next to you, this whatever man, thinks that he's a hell of a lot more important or brings more value to the society or community than you do. And it's just it's just not true. Right. It's inherently untrue. Yeah. And this book, I as as we've said, we cannot recommend this enough. I don't want to go into the plot, which is why we we haven't, right? Because this is a book that is so plot-driven. It, it is. And it's like you you start the first chapter thinking it's one type of book, and then you flip to a certain page and you're like, oh, this is a much different book than what I thought. Like, it's a completely different story. <laughs> right. Yeah. I went into it thinking it was one thing, and it turned out to be something else. And don't get me wrong. I'm thrilled. I'm happy. I'm super happy. It was fucking great. But it's... Very like it turns into a completely different novel. Yeah, once you be, hit that be point, be prepared. <laughs> be prepared. Let's put let's let's put it that way. And before we move on to to the wine, I wanted to leave everyone with a with a profound but also very simple thought that I really appreciated, and it comes not from Donise, so it actually comes from one of the other main characters in the book, Jamie, who is a really difficult figure to to to, to understand. Yes, and is <laughs> and is really complicated. And is he has really, a lot of layers. A lot of layers and is really difficult, but I I found that really refreshing that this was a character that was so well-developed and whatever your a feelings are depth. about Jamie, you know? Uh, yeah, a man <laughs> with depth. Um, where are those? Um, I I think he's such a fascinating figure. I'm curious for people to tell us what they think of Jamie when yes. they read the book. I personally liked him. I was team Jamie. I liked him a lot. I, he pissed me off. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, he yeah. Was, he, I was team Jamie. He had moments of like, I want to punch him in the face. Yeah. But then but then he he's just a likable character that grows on you. Yes. Yes. And and I, I wanted to end the conversation or the portion of this conversation with this thought because I really love it. And I think you can take it with you. And he says, he says, kindness is something that seems small, Donis, but it's like tossing a pebble into a pond. And the ripples reach further than you thought. Oh. And that, I think if you boil the book down, I think you can get to that yeah. and know that the book is about you doing your best for yourself, for others, thinking seven generations ahead, and that the world can be a better place if you do that. Yeah. Agreed. It's a it's a world-changing type of thought. Yeah. And I love it. A very simple thought. Yes. So cheers oh, to a phenomenal cheers. book. Yes. An and to not book. throwing any spoilers out there. I can't believe I, I it was, was so hard. I was so I like, worried. I was like, what am I going to say? That's like going to ruin the, the book. The character, someone? the women character. I'm like, <laughs> trying not to. 
We did good. We did good. We, we did, did good. really good. Because you guys, if you do pick up this book, you will absolutely love it and be very thankful we didn't go into the, the plot at all. <laughs> 100% agreed. So I'm very excited about this wine. I'm very much enjoying it. And I just love, love, love the story behind the pairing. Yeah. So um, like I said, this wine is Camines to Dreams, a Gruner of Outliner. And we haven't had a Gruner on the show yet. No. It's um, So it's pretty much a grape that's primarily, or mostly people think of Austria when they think of Gruner. But yeah, like we said earlier, it was really hard to find this wine. And I also feel like that speaks to the lack of representation in the wine community when it comes to Native American growers and winemakers. I didn't find a lot. And that was kind of discouraging too. I'm like, damn it, we're here trying to shine a light and I could barely find any to shine on. Yeah. <laughs> so Kita Wines, one of the ones I mentioned before, was one of the more well-known um, brands that ceased production. But luckily, the winemaker from there, Tara Gomez, started her own project, which is this one, Coming to Dreams. She's from the Santa Ynez Band of Chumash Indians in Santa Barbara County. And she basically fell in love with winemaking after she set foot on a winery as a child. And that tribe of Indians awarded her actually with a scholarship to go to school in California State University in Fresno, where she was one of two women to earn an enology degree in 1998. So, I mean, I think that's major and so life-changing for someone in the tribe like that to go out of the, the community and the comfort zone to take on kind of a like a challenge in this way. So she worked and traveled all across uh, California and Europe, but she wanted to combine what she learned in um, Europe and that type of winemaking, the old world winemaking and the ancient, deeply spiritual approach that her tribe takes to sustainability. And, you know, and with their love of the land, which actually now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, yeah, I could imagine how almost spiritual that would be because in the book, they're very in tune with nature, with the land, with what they're given. They're thankful for everything. And that would pair perfectly with winemaking, like taking care of the vines and the the farm. And it's just, as I'm saying it, I'm like, that all goes really well together. It's so true. And they see themselves as an extension and, yeah. and, and part of nature, that respecting nature is to respect yourself. Yes. So it's really fascinating. I think that's why maybe this is one of my favorite pairings so far, because it aligns not only in terms of, okay, this is a Native American winemaker and this is a Native American author, but in terms of values, yes, the values, values that are shared in the book identical. and the values that are shared by the winemaker are the same. And yeah. we have so much to learn from them. Exactly. And then it makes me even more sad that there are not as many winemakers out there because this is just so such a natural fit. Um, so she, so like I said, she traveled a lot, was making wine a lot in different places, but then she decided it was time to go back home. And that's, um, where she went to Kita Wines and was working on there. Unfortunately, it ceased production. I couldn't find a reason why, mm -hmm. um, one could only imagine, but you know, I'm sure it probably wasn't profitable or, or well marketed or, or something. I don't know. I'm speculating here. Well, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough business, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, it's no, such a it saturated is. market. And and also, I mean, when you think about it, the harvest that you do today, you're not going to reap the rewards for a while. Right. So you have to be, you know, a few harvests in before you even see profit, before you see anything coming to fruition. So 
I could imagine that has something to do with it. But luckily, she didn't give up when she was done with Keto Wines. She and her wife launched this brand, which is the wine that we're tasting today. Um, her wife's name is Mireya, and they met in 2006 through their work in the wine industry. Um, they were great friends, and and through wine and their friendship, their love grew with traveling and, and you know, just learning more about wine. I thought it was funny that um, her wife was born and raised in Catalonia in Spain and speaks Catalan. So that's where the name came from. Camins in Catalan means paths. So when you translate it, it's paths to dreams, which is also kind of like spiritual, whimsical. And, and I love that so much about that. It's beautiful. Yeah. And this is their dream winery. So it all like is wrapped up in a perfect bow. Um, so they're both winemakers, which I would imagine that'd be interesting, like having to, to work with a different winemaker who's also your partner. It's kind of like you writing a book, Maritza, with, with a, a husband or something, and, and they have their own style. <laughs> You, they'd lose that they battle. They would lose. Well, Joan, thinking back to Joan, that must thinking be interesting Thinking back to too. Joan, Joan Didion. For those of you who didn't tune in to episode uh, where we talk about the year of magical thinking, absolutely. It's like, a, it's like a relationship like that. They're both winemakers working together. Oh, so many parallels here. So many. <laughs> so they source their fruit from um, Select Santa Rita Hills Vineyards. And this gruner comes from Spear Vineyard. Gruner, I'm just giving some background since we haven't had this grape before. It's a dry white wine that grows mostly in Austria. Over 75% of Gruner actually comes from Austria. So huge Gruner Veltliner place. Um, the name translates to Green Wine of Veltlin, and which was an area in the Lower Alps during the 1600s that is now part of Italy. Um, it's it's a it's a fun and exotic alternative to Sauvignon Blanc. So I'm like, Maritza will definitely love this. You know, you know, I love this. All I had to do was smell it to know. Right, I love like, it. Mm. that's it. <laughs> and with this wine in particular, the grapes are foot stomped, which I thought was interesting because no one does that anymore. It's just not efficient. It's not. I mean, they're not large scale or anything production, but uh, it is foot stomped and left to, to macerate in the cold room for about six hours prior to pressing. I just picture, um, I love Lucy. Yeah. In that episode, just. <laughs> Every time I think of I love Lucy, I think of when she she's in, she's working with the conveyor belt with all the chocolate oh and then God. she can't keep up. So she just starts eating the chocolate. <laughs> and that's just a metaphor for my life sometimes. <laughs> aren't we all in that? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? For the geeky wine nerds out there, they ferment with natural yeast and two thirds of the volume is fermented in neutral French oak. And the other third is in stainless steel tank. Um, back in one of the earlier episodes, we talked a lot about vessels for fermentation, how they impart flavors on the wine. So I would gauge from here that they want some sort of complexity and tertiary flavors down the line, but um, they want to keep the freshness with the stainless steel and create the complexity without imparting so many additional flavors. Um, and the wine is unfined and unfiltered, which I know you like. Love. You like stuff that's uh, a little cloudy at times. Love. That's my favorite. That's how I know I'm going to like a wine is if I can peer through the bottle and it looks cloudy. <laughs> no, I'm going to love Definitely. it. Definitely. Now let's get to the tasting. I'm looking at the wine. It's kind of, it's a very pale yellow color. I would say borderline pale gold color. Mm -hmm. um, and let's smell it. I get a lot of lemon yeah. on the nose. Yeah, citrus and... 
There's like even a grapefruit a little yeah, bit. Yeah, grapefruit. It's like a peppery. I feel like there's an apple. Like apple. Like green apple, yes, maybe. Yes. It smells fantastic. I mean, it smells it so beautiful. fresh. Yeah. It's very aromatic, fresh, delicious. It's very crisp. It's very crisp. It's not just like it has some weight to it in your mouth. Like it's not completely like you're drinking water. Yeah. There's like some creaminess to it. And again, you get kind of, you know, the green apple, some pear, some kind of um like herbiness. Yeah. Like there's also like kind of some salinity to it or so- something that makes me kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that I can picture myself drinking here in Miami out on a hot day, you know, having lunch For at sure. mandolin or something. Yeah. And there's a lot of. <laughs> definitely <laughs> shout out to mandolin mandolin bring on the bottles <laughs> it's just like a nice like refreshing yeah wine and if you're having it outside on a hot day it just it would hit it would hit, hit the, spot. the spot yeah and it has great acidity it's super like vibrant it just kind of explodes in your mouth the yeah. acidity but it's just it has um, the body and all the flavors, um, so it's delicious. And this is a good example of a cool climate white wine. I would say that it's um, it's a good palate cleanser, too. Um, it kind of cleans it all out. Um, and I think it would go well with, like, really rich foods. Yeah. Kind of cut through the fat and, and yeah. all that. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head because this is something that if you're like me, that I really like. Riesling, I really like Sauvignon Blanc. This is a really great alternative. If you like those two, you'll probably like this. No, agreed. And a fun food fact for this, um, Gruner is probably one of the only like still wines that pairs well with vegetables like artichoke and grilled asparagus. So those are always like challenging vegetables to pair wine with. And this is probably one of the only ones that could stand up to them. Interesting. Yes. So this vintage is actually, let me see if I have it here. So yeah, they just released this. Like literally I told you the other day they they were on the site. So this is their 2021 12.5% alcohol by volume. And you could find it on their website for about $30. I would say that's pretty good bang for your book. I want to say they have another white or two they have some red so there's a lot of variety there for you to like get a quick six pack and get you know cheaper shipping and i really like this quote that they have on the bottle it says wine adds a smile to friendship and a spark to love ain't that the truth ain't that the truth <laughs> <laughs> you can pair anything good in life with wine and it'll only get better exactly so i'm really glad we paired this wine with the book i think it's a great edition and I could totally drink this in in the forest that she would go to. Yep, to find clarity, (laughs) to to spend time with herself, right? And um, she mentions at one point that when she prays, she prays for honesty, even if only with herself. And I like that too, even like when, when, when thinking about this wine, because I think that, you know, it's, it's so true. You know, you're, you want to shine a light you want to help and support Native American yes. producers, but there just aren't really that many. And we have to be honest with ourselves about why that is. Yeah. We have to be honest with ourselves about what that means and how we and then how we can actually support, yeah. right? It's it's unfortunate. It's not that there aren't a lot of Native American winemakers because they don't 
they don't care to be winemakers. Yeah. It's 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 the same systemic issues, right? So this wine, in a way, is sort of like it's it's that much more triumphant. Mm-hmm. I think. No, I have to agree with you, and and it's delicious. And and Tara, keep keep doing your thing. Keep doing your thing. We appreciate we're you. Fans. We we're fans. We are big big fans. We love your wine, and we're happy to support you in really any Anything. capacity. Funny story. Um, I know we've talked in past episodes about Uncle Drew, our our wine godfather and he actually had a similar thought because i was scrolling through his instagram the other day i didn't even tell him we were drinking this i didn't tell him i bought this nothing he had the same exact wine in his hand in the story and he's like oh yeah i know Terry. i know them whenever you come i'll introduce you we were like of course you know them of, of course, course you do you it know? was so perfect that was so that was also very affirming for me i'm like yeah i made a right choice yeah yes if it's very drew certified very serendipitous but 100 percent. if drew says it's good it's good it's guys good. <laughs> That's the one person who, I mean, I think we can honestly say his opinion is it. It is. That's it. He tells me to drink it. I will. No questions. He has sent us some of the most delicious wine I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I mean, it. he doesn't, he doesn't get one wrong. No. No. <laughs> He's amazing. We're so fortunate to have him as our, as our guide in yes. so many ways. So for those of you who don't know, Drew is amazing. Follow him on Instagram. He has some of the best wine suggestions. He's it. We'll post about him in the notes. Yes, (laughs) definitely. We'll have to. Well, thank you again so much for for joining us for episode 15. We couldn't be happier that, that you chose to listen to us and join us on this journey. Please keep the conversation going on our Instagram account or our Facebook page, email us, um, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. It's available on all platforms or rate it. If you're feeling great, if you love it, just give us a great, good rating, good review. Buy some merch. Yes. Buy the merch. We have cute merch dropping soon. I've been playing with a lot of things. So We'll give you a promo code. Get you merch stuff. Yep. We got a lot of great books coming. Uh, we've got the next two already planned. Yes. And we're super excited about them. So stay stay tuned. Stay tuned. And like always, we got to end it with a cheers. Cheers. Cheers.